I invite you to turn your Bible to the book of Nehemiah with me this morning. Nehemiah chapter 8. As we begin this morning, for those of you that are not new to church, particularly those of you that uh, come and I see your smiling face almost every Sunday, I want us to just stop and I want us to kind of step out of our normal way of thinking, to step out of this is what we always do and actually think just for a minute about what we actually do when we get together on these Sunday mornings. First of all, it's the weekend and it's the morning, not something that most people want to think about or even be awake during. And for those of us that don't need to work, we could be getting extra sleep or visiting family or even getting ready for the big game this afternoon. We have chosen instead to get up, to get dressed, some of us in clothes nicer than we would wear every other day, and show up and be here together. And what do we do when we come here together? We sing songs. Now let's be honest, how many of you gather together with other people during the week and sing songs? I'm not talking about shower or the car that may or may not one day be put on YouTube for all us to laugh at. How many of you get together and intentionally sing songs? I have to tell you that unless it's a very long car ride and I'm singing Beatles with my kids or when I was really little at my grandmother's and we sang Christmas carols, I don't know that I ever get together with anybody and sing except at church. And when we come here to sing, it's not top 40 hits. Sometimes there's archaic words that maybe you don't even understand. But that's not the oddest thing that we do. The oddest thing that we do is what we're doing right now. We sit somewhat quietly, some of you you better than others, but we listen to a guy that looks very much like he's giving a lecture. Now, some have challenged this in the church in recent years. They said, look, the idea of a sermon is outdated. People need a multimedia experience. You need dialogue and drama, and that's how you're going to connect with people. And I think we can respond to that or push back to it in at least two ways. First of all, our culture still appreciates the monologue. Just think about some of you that are uh, tech savvy and are kind of in the know. Think about how popular the TED Talks have become in the last few years. Well, what do you have? You have one person standing up talking sometimes for an hour or an hour and a half, telling their story or giving information about something that they know. And people flock and fill up entire auditoriums to be a part of those talks. But regardless of the ever-changing statistics about attention spans and about young and old alike being able to joy and sit through a monologue, the second and most important reason to push back on that is that preaching is a practice that was created by, commanded for people and exemplified by God Himself. God is the great preacher. He tells us to gather together for preaching. Even how we came to faith in Christ is preaching. It's monologue. It's one direction. God spoke to us through His Word and called us to Himself. This is a great picture of what takes place week after week after week. At the same time, preaching is not meant to be an activity that we're engaged in alone. That is to say, God calls us individually, but He does not expect us to remain as Christians just on our own as individuals. Instead, He calls us together. He gathers us together as His people to hear His voice together. That doesn't mean that we get rid of podcasts or listening to sermons in the car or whatever, but it does mean those things can never be the steady, normal diet of God's people. 
Instead, God desires us to gather together, even as we're doing right now. In Deuteronomy, Moses reminds Israel that the Lord said, Gather the people to me, that I may let them hear my words, so that they may learn to fear me all the days that they live on the earth, and that they may teach their children so. Here is part of the reason why God redeemed His people out of Egypt, redeemed them and brought them to Himself at Sinai, that they might gather together and hear His voice, learning to fear Him and teaching their children to do the same. In a recent book, a man by the name of Christopher Ashe has helpfully traced this theme throughout all the Bible, that God redeems individuals that He might gather them together as one people that they might together hear His voice. An entire book showing that all throughout the Scriptures. This is what God does. In fact, when you get to the end of the Bible, the letter to the Hebrews, God is, makes it absolutely clear. He issues not a suggestion, not an idea, but a command. Do not forsake the assembling of yourselves together. If you ever wondered if it's possible to love Jesus but not the church. Well, it is possible to find some pretty crummy Christians in churches. But to divorce yourself completely from God's people is antithetical to the Christian religion, to faith in Jesus. Think about the audacity of that, though, of what we do here every single Sunday when we gather together to hear the preaching of the Bible, to hear someone stand behind this book and tell you how you ought to live, how you ought to think, how your life ought to be different. Why can they do that? On what authority do I stand here? Well, it's not my own. It's because I'm preaching from God's Word. And the reality is this. God's voice is heard through the preaching of God's Word by God's man to God's people. When the Scriptures are handled rightly, God is the one preaching to us. He is the one whose voice we hear. So on the surface, it may look like the honest thing that we do, but for our souls, it is the most important thing that we do to gather together as a people and hear from God through his word. Perhaps that should have been the focus of the sermon this morning and a, a, a kind of theological explanation about the importance of being gathered together under the word. I'm kind of assuming that this morning with just the, the little bit of, of instruction that I've given, but what we want to focus on today is more on the practicality side. How do you think about gathering together? What should you do? What mindset, what expectation should there be when we come and we sit and we listen to the preaching of God's word? Why is that our focus today? Well, this war, or rather last week, we talked about that last week, this week, and next week will be kind of a loosely connected series of sermons as we prepare for the future of this church. And in more specifically, the, the part of the theme this morning ties into the direction that the elders have set years ago for how we begin our, our life together as a church community every year. We take the, the first two weeks of the year and we think about what we have called the pillars of the Christian life. That is, those uh, two pillars upon which everything else in the Christian life is built. What are those twin pillars? The Word of God and prayer. Uh, to, to be honest, uh, growing up, it took me a very, very, very long time to see that. No one ever pointed that out to me. But it doesn't take you long in reading any part of the Bible and you will see that hearing from God and responding back to Him is everything about your life as one of God's people. 
if you don't have these things, a regular intake of God's Word or a, rather, a, 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 or a consistent talking back to God from what He is saying to you, then your fellowship, your communion with God will be weakened. It will be sickly and less than what it should be. You will struggle as a Christian. So as a church fellowship every year, we turn to these pillars at the beginning. And last year, we looked at the word and prayer for the church. How can you take in and speak out God's word to encourage the church? How can you pray for the church? This year, we keep with that theme of community, but rather than looking at word and prayer for the church, we're going to consider word and prayer with the church. So this morning, we want to think about what does it mean to be with God's people together under God's word. In order to think about that, we want to go to Nehemiah chapter 8. For those of you that may not be familiar with the Bible, or maybe those of you that are and are still trying to process through this morning, what, what, what is Nehemiah about again? Let me just kind of bring you up to speed on the story of the Bible. You know, the Bible is a story. It's not a magic eight ball. You don't just kind of flop it down and say, what are you going to say to me today, God? That's not the way the Bible was written or how it works. It's one big long story of how God created the world. We rebelled against his authority and brought sin into the world and how he is working to redeem, restore, and recreate in the last day this world without sin and a people for himself. And so at this point in the story, God has redeemed Abraham's descendants out of Egypt, calling this great nation Israel. He has made promises to them called a covenant. They will be his people and he will be his God. And part of his gift to them is to give them law, instruction on how they are to live before him, that they as sinful people can be with him a holy God. But sadly, they have rejected that law. Though he promised blessings for obedience as well as cursings for disobedience, they chose cursings through their disobedience. In fact, they didn't even worship God. Though they saw his power again and again and again through even miraculous deeds, they chose to worship other gods. And so after years of patient warning, God finally brought the cursing, the judgment that he had promised. And he allowed Israel to be yanked out of the promised land and scattered as slaves once again to the nations around. But once again, in fulfillment to his promises, God is now graciously, slowly bringing back a people, reassembling Israel that they might worship before him and be his people again. And we are just now in the midst of this rebuilding as a man has, or God, rather God has raised up a man named Nehemiah to take leadership of all Israel to restore the city walls and complete the building of God's temple that God's people might be his people. They might live and worship as his people again. And this brings us to Nehemiah chapter 8. We're going, to be, we're going to pick up our reading from the very last verse of chapter 7. When the seventh month had come, the people of Israel were in their towns. And all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women, and all who could understand what they heard on the first day of the seventh month. And he read from it, facing the square before the water gate from early morning until midday in the presence of the men and women and those who could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. 
Ezra the scribe stood on a wooden platform that they had made for the purpose, and beside him stood Methathiah, Shammah, Ananiah, Uriah, Hilkiah, and Masajah. And at his right hand, Pedaiah, Mishael, Machajiah, Hashem, Hashbadadah, Zechariah, and Meshulam on his left hand. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people. And as he opened it, all the people stood. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God. And all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. And Joshua, Benai, Sherebiah, Jamin, Akub, Shabbatai, Hadiah, Masathiah, Kalita, Azariah, Jajabad, Hanan, Peeliah, the Levites helped the people to understand the law while the people remained in their places. They read from the book, from the law of God clearly, and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. And Nehemiah, who was governor, and Ezra, the priest and scribe, and the Levites who taught the people, said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. Then he said to them, Go your way. Eat the fat and drink sweet wine and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready. For this day is holy to our Lord. And do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites calmed down all the people saying, Be quiet, for this day is holy. Do not be grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and drink and to send portions and to make great rejoicing. Because they had understood the words that were declared to them. May God bless the reading of His word. Well, other than being a repository for baby names, what can we take away from this passage this morning? Even though this scene takes place during the Old Covenant, it served as an example, as a template for how the people of God in, in Israel would gather together in smaller settings, in synagogues, and worship the living God surrounded by, or rather focused around the Word of God. It even... Some scholars believe, since we don't actually have any written record of what took place, uh, we have hints and, and details. Some scholars think this is also very similar to the pattern of what we have seen in the early Christian gatherings. And so we find here a, an almost immediate sense of application for how we ought to think about gathering together to hear the preaching of God's Word. Perhaps you just typically show up, but here's what God reveals. There's more to it than that. There is, a, there is a kind of broad intentionality whereby there ought to be certain expectations from us and the speaker knowing that God is going to speak when His Word is read and proclaimed. So what should we do? Everything that you're going to write down if you're taking notes in, in the outline provided, everything here is application-oriented. In other words, every single thing that I say is something that you ought to do this morning. First of all, what should we do together? We should seek the Word. We should seek the word. It's important to see the people's role in this assembly. Yes, the word was taught to them, but notice they wanted to be taught God's word. As we're thinking about what it means to seek after the word of God, we should first understand that we should gather intentionally. We should gather intentionally. We are told that even after the Israelites had settled in their towns, all the people came together as one. That, I mean, think about that. The people are getting settled. 
They're becoming secure. They're finally feeling like something is happening under Nehemiah's leadership and we are becoming the people of God again. They are going out into towns and settlements. They are beginning to farm and have families. And suddenly, they're packing back up and they're all traveling back to Jerusalem, coming together as one man. That was no easy task. Today, the word would be inconvenient. That's what would be slapped on it. But this is what they do. They pack up, they journey to Jerusalem, and notice it's not just a few representatives of the tribes, the families. Verse 2 makes it clear, the assembly was made up of men and women and all who were able to understand. Everybody's there. There is no limit on who is going to sit together, or rather, as we'll see in a minute, stand together under the teaching of the law. There was intentionality there. The fathers are saying, I'm getting my wife, I'm getting my sons, and we are going to hear from God. Listening to the preaching of God's word wasn't an add-on to some other business of the day. This is the reason why they traveled this far. This is the reason why they, they did not worry about the inconvenience. They went to be with God's people to hear God's voice. They sought after the word so they gathered intentionally. They also gathered expectantly. They gathered expectantly. What do they do when they come together? Verse 1. I love this. They told Ezra, the teacher of the law, to bring out the book of Moses, which the Lord had commanded for Israel. I have to admit, I've been here 13 years now. Official. 13 years. No one has ever been to my office on a Sunday morning and said, Hey, get the Bible and come. We want to hear preaching. Now, some of you might be thinking that, but I've never had that experience. I would, you know, I would like to have been there on that day and seen all these people say, Ezra, get the book and preach to us. You say, no, why Ezra? Well, well, you know, well, why him? Well, if you read the book that comes just before this that bears his name, Ezra, the Nehemiah, if you read Ezra, you'll actually see, I think, around chapter 7 that Ezra was especially well qualified for this task so that he had determined to understand the word to do it and to teach it. So Ezra had committed himself to understanding, perhaps even the word might mean memorizing the very words of God, to doing them himself and then to teaching the people to do it also. So they knew Ezra was well qualified for this task. The point is the leaders did not demand it of the people. They did not, they did not ha go rounding them up, banging on the doors to get them up and to say, come on, you guys got to get out of here in the square. I know you don't want to do this. I know it's early. Come on, come on, you got to get out of here and do that. No, these people were hungry for the way. They came expectantly knowing when God's word is read and preached and declared, God himself is going to speak. We're going to hear God's voice today. And I think it's just such an amazing contrast as we're traveling, raising support for our mission, and we're visiting other churches, how that's not the focus of the gathering. The most important part of the gathering is either music or drama or even just talking with other people. But the Word of God does not hold a central place. It's kind of the, the add-on. It's kind of that thing. When everything else is done, we're going to spend a few minutes lazily walking through what the Bible says and see if there's something we can take away that might encourage us this morning or maybe even make us to feel good about ourselves. Now, some people I know, if asked honestly, would say they simply find the sermon boring. Now, I will say this. 
from my theology of preaching, boring sermons are indefensible. You can't defend them. You can't say, well, that's just the way it is sometimes. No, sermons ought never be boring. They're boring for two reasons. Number one, it's because the preacher lacks the adequate preparation or skills to present a sermon that's not boring. It could be the preacher's fault. He may be well-intentioned but lack the spiritual health or the training whereby he himself is gripped by the message and he is able to deliver it in a way that is gripping to others. At the same time, it might not be the preacher's fault. It might be the fault of the listener. It might be the fault of those who come with low expectations, who come looking at their, at their phones or at their, at their watches wondering, when is this thing going to be done? I, 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 you know, we just come up, we show up, nothing's going to happen. It's all the same. I've heard it before. In which case I would say the sermon is boring because of you and the way that you are approaching the task. Either way, the scriptures are not the problem. We are. The scriptures, the Bible is the very words of God. And so when we come together, we must make sure that we're not just seeking after the word, but that we are honoring the word. When we gather together, we must honor the word of God. That's the second major thing that we see here. I've talked about it before, but I kind of did a Google search uh, this week and came up with some more information that was once again sad. Uh, one of my favorite bands, uh, about the time actually that uh, some of you are Facebook friends, uh, Jason posted a memory of us going to Africa, me and the Skidmore boys as I like to say, and uh, one of my favorite bands about that time uh, just has completely dropped off the scene in terms of anything helpful biblically. To give you some idea about uh, what happened, they had uh, the, the lead singer went on this rant several, on several different places about how people worship the Bible and not God. I thought, really? I always find it a struggle to get people to read the Bible, to take it seriously, to study it out. But in his mind, now ah, people make too much about the Bible, too much about the Bible. And even in the way he argued, I thought, yeah, this is not good. Well, where is he now? Well, he just released his last musical project called God Our Mother. He denies the historical reliability of the Bible. So people like Noah and Adam, they're just myths. They're not any real person that's there. He's hanging out with people that have denied essential Christian doctrine that have become not just because we don't like them heretics, but bona fide heretics who have denied the faith. People like Rob Bell and Rachel Held Evans. Now, how did all that happen? How did he go from being a guy with powerful lyrics that, 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 that would actually move me to tears in worship to someone who practically denies the faith now? It started with denying the importance of Scripture. That's where it started for him. In claiming it was an idol for some Christians, he was able in his mind to rationalize distancing himself from its authority. And once God's Word is no longer God's Word it doesn't have authority in your life, all bets are off. You can do whatever you want to do. You can believe whatever you want to believe. You can go and live and just all bets are off if there's no external authority. If you are your own authority, then there's no one to stop you. And that's exactly what happened to him. All the guardrails were taken off or were, were, were taken away. He had nothing that would say, you know what? I can't say God is our mother because the Bible doesn't say that. God says God is our father. That's not a bash against mothers. God created mothers, but this is how he's chosen to reveal himself. So what about us? Understand 
that the Israelites came together, what did they believe about Scripture? They said that this book of the law, which was written by Moses, did not have its origin with Moses. They're saying we're coming together and we're hearing from the book. We're hearing from the law of Moses, but we understand it's not from Moses in the sense that it didn't spring from his mind. Here's what I think about God, and you should too, in five easy lessons. No. Notice what it says. This is the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded to them. What did they see? They see that this is God's word to us, mediated, written down by men, but God's word nevertheless. Therefore, they honored the word, the book, because it was God's word. So how can we do that? How can we honor God's word when we come together and hear it proclaimed first? We should listen attentively. We should listen attentively. Notice they not only say, uh, Nehemiah records, they want to hear God's word proclaimed, they act like they want it proclaimed. Verse 3, Ezra read from the law facing the square before the water gate from early morning until midday. In the presence of the men, the women, and those who can understand, and the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. I mean, this is the very first secret church right here. And I have a feeling Ezra preached even slower than David Blatt. Now, you know, maybe I'm just a bad dad, but I'm thinking about having my four kids, four to 14, standing for five hours listening to the preaching of God's word. I would think that would be a very difficult thing. But what does Ezra say? They were attentive to the preaching. That means you can't just say, oh, it's a cultural thing. That's what it was expected. No, 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 no. He goes even further, and I love this. He says, the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. They were gripped by what was being said to them that day. And, you know, this gets back to the point I made earlier about bad preaching. And, you know, what one of the one of the most valuable lessons personally I ever had about preaching took about two or three minutes to explain. It was uh, one of my last years at seminary. It was in a, a preaching class with a master preacher. And, you, you know, you're getting, you get up and you, you know, take all your study and you pour it out just like here for about 30 minutes. And then you say, amen, you sit down. And then all the students, the professor tell you all the things you did bad and all the things you did well. It's brutal. Let me just tell you. Okay. Um, you know, when I'm done and if I've just left everything I have up with this, I just want to pull a switch and I'm out. I'm gone. I don't want to see anybody. I want to talk to anybody. I just want to go curl up in a blanket and take a nap. Okay. So sitting down and having them all of a sudden say, it's no good. But that's what you're there to learn how to handle well God's word. But here's one of the things he said. It doesn't matter how bad the preaching is. You ought to be able to walk away with something to thank God for. Why? Because at the end of the day, it's God's word that's being proclaimed. Even if all you can say is, he read it well, then you walk away thankful for that. And the reason why that lesson is so important to seminary students is because the more you fill your head up with the Bible, the easier it is for your heart to fill with pride. And, so, and so, so, when I, so when we go to visit places or we're at our own home church listening to somebody else preach, we should not just be sitting there thinking, yeah, he bombed that point. Yeah, he didn't get that verse right. You know, oh my, did he not read a commentary? Well, what is he thinking here? You know, how long did he spend on this? 10 minutes? That's not, that's not our thinking. It's easy to do that. Trust me. It's easy to do that. But we must come like everybody else and say, what is God going to say today? Because if I just treat the Bible like a textbook, I'm not honoring it. 
I'm not showing that it's actually God's word. Yes, there's a place for discernment, and some guys do blow it. But our default mode of listening ought to be humility and attentiveness. We ought to put all distractions away and give ourselves over to listening to what God says. Second, as we seek to honor God's word, we should not only listen attentively, but we should listen worshipfully. We should listen worshipfully. Ezra the scribe stood on a wooden platform that they had made for the purpose. Verse 5, And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people. And as he opened it, all the people stood. Why did the people stand the whole time that the book of the law was read? Why did they put Ezra up on that platform? Why do you put me behind this pulpit up on this platform? Are they worshiping the book? No, they are honoring the book because they're worshiping God. Ezra blessed what? Verse 6, the book? No, Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God. And all the people answered, amen, amen, lifting their hands. And they bowed down their heads and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Someone insightfully said, if you're, if you're, if you're one who wants to put your hands up in worship, and you understand it doesn't happen often, but we have no problem with that, God be with you in doing so, you ought to also be just as likely to put your face on the ground because that's what we see over and over and over again in the Bible from God's people. Ezra finishes proclaiming God's word and the immediate response is thankful worship. Again, this is not like a planned response by Ezra and the Levites. It's not like it's a game show. The amen lights come on. Oh, we got to say amen. We got to applaud. We got to put our hand. It's not the way it is. It's instinctive. They just do it. They just respond because of what they have heard. Thankful worship is the natural response of people who desire the word to be preached, who have come hungry to hear from the Lord and desire their lives to be changed. That's how they respond. And you know, different traditions display this differently in their corporate life together. In some traditions, the one that I grew up in, the preacher would say right before the sermon, he's getting ready to read the passage and to preach of, and he would say, please stand with me in the honor of the reading of God's word. And he reads the text, and then he says, you may be seated. Well, after reading Nehemiah 8, I'm surprised. How come, we, how come we don't stand during the whole sermon? That's what they did. Nevertheless, there's some value there. It's meant to say we're honoring, we're reverent, we are worshiping God by honoring his book. Still yet others in different traditions, when the pastor is finished reading the text for that day, or sometimes the pastor doesn't read the text, sometimes someone else reads the text for him before he goes to preach. And that preacher will say something very similar to what, to what I almost always say, something like, this is the word of God to his people, or this is the word of God for you, or may God bless the reading of his word. And collectively, all the people respond, thanks be to God. That would not be a bad tradition to start here. Still yet. Probably one of my favorite traditions is because of how odd it is and yet how theological it is in the Church of Scotland. There's no doubt about the place of honor the Bible holds before the people. The service begins when a man whose title is Beadle, not Beagle, it's not Snoopy, it's Beadle. I don't know what that means, but it's B-E-A-D-L-E. Someone can Google the etymology later and send me a message or something. But the Beadle walks in holding the Bible before him. He comes in the side door. The, the pulpit is on a raised platform that has stairs and a door. It's a box. And so the beetle carries the book. He opens the box. He steps in and he lays the book on the pulpit and he turns to the passage. And from the minute he walks in with the book, all of the people rise and stand. And I've been told that some men are beetles their entire life 
from the time that they're teenagers to the time that they're in their 70s. Can you imagine the shuffle of the old man bringing the book, gently, meticulously laying it out, flipping open to the page, and then the beetle walks out and he gets the minister. And he leads the minister in and he opens the door and the minister walks in and then he shuts the door behind him, implying, don't come out until you've said something about the book that we might worship God. It's an amazing picture. I can only imagine why nobody in this country does it. I would be like, the service is halfway done. What's going on? Why can't we do this? Come on, more efficient, more efficient. Church of Scotland isn't worried about efficiency. They're worried about worshiping the living God by honoring the book. What's the point of all this? The point is the worship of God takes place when we reverently, worshipfully give attention to what he says through the scriptures. Some of those traditions have merit, but none of them will mean anything if it doesn't connect to your heart. It's not just a formality. It's not just a show. We're meant to have inside a desire to say, God has spoken. He's allowed men to write it down. How can we not cherish this book and give attention when it's read? We're to honor the word. We should listen attentively. We should listen worshipfully. And thirdly, we should listen purposefully. We should listen purposefully. Did you notice they have the Levites spread out among the people? This massive group. Now, let's not understand, you know, this is not Israel at its heyday. You know, this is not the millions upon millions of people that we read coming out of, uh, of Egypt and that David counts in the census and all that. There's tens of thousands, at least, hundreds of thousands. And so it's a huge gathering, but it's not like, you know, don't, don't over. But notice that what happens. They send these Levite guys, all those great names that you can name your boys later. Uh, they have these men standing all through, spread throughout the congregation. Why? The end of verse 7, the Levites helped the people to understand the law while the people remained in their places. They read from the book from the law of God clearly and they gave the sense so the people understood the reading. Once again, it's not a formality. It's not, let's, let's, just, let's just go and let's just have a scripture reading. They are coming with this purpose that the people hear, that the people understand, that the people believe, and the people go away changed. That's the purpose for which they gathered together under God's word. And that should be our desire as well. This is the purpose for which we come together. This is the purpose that we sit and we listen to someone speak for 30 or 40 minutes to understand what God is saying and to have it applied to our lives. If that's that's how we're thinking about the sermon, if that's how we're thinking about the word that's being proclaimed, it's going to change how we think about Sundays. It's going to change how we think about coming together. Not just sitting in a car, hitting shuffle and finding some sermon that we want to listen to for to kill 10 minutes in the car. But coming together as one man, as God's people under his word. It will change the way we give attention to what is being said. It will change the way that we leave this service as well. That brings us to the final direction this morning from Nehemiah 8. We've seen that we should seek the word, that we should honor the word. Finally, we should respond to the word. We should respond to the word. What happens after the sermon? Well, I can tell you what I see. I don't know what's going on in your mind. I don't know what's going on in your heart. But I can tell you what I see. ready to get out of here. That's what that says to me. 
I'm packing up my stuff. I'm getting my Bible together. I'm closing the book. I'm pocketing my pens in my pocket. I'm making sure I didn't drop anything. Where's my purse? Where's this? Where's that? And then the benediction is given. And it's where you going for lunch. Are you watching the game this afternoon? What are you going to do on Monday morning? Now, don't get me wrong. I mean, I know things happen. And it's not like that we never talk about those things. I understand that. But, but, but have you ever thought that maybe the response would just be to sit for a minute and say, I can't leave. I've got to think about what I just heard. This has massive implications for my life. If, if that's never your response, then either for the past 13 years you've had a really terrible preacher, which is possible, or we're just not prepared to respond to the word the way God wants us to. Notice the, the example before us. First of all, they respond sincerely. They respond sincerely. Nehemiah, who was the governor, verse 9, and Ezra the priest and the scribe and the Levites who taught the people, said to the people, this day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. Why would they say that? For all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. I'll be honest, when I read this, that seemed like a foreign concept to me because I'd never seen it happen. But, but some of you know the story of our denomination and how its leadership turned its back on Scripture, turned its back on God, called themselves Christians and denied that Jesus was a, born of a virgin, that he was divine, that he was the only way of salvation. They were, they were Christian in name only. And our denomination too late realized what was happening, that all these ministers were, were, being, were being taught this heretical belief. They weren't Christians. And so we had to have this massive fight to retake our denomination, to put godly Christian men back into places of leadership, who could then elect presidents, who could get new professors, who would actually teach the Bible to the young men and women. We were sitting off to be missionaries and pastors. And I'll never forget going when the dust had more or less settled to Southern Seminary. The, the, the big fights started around 1993 when the new young president came. And I came there in 1999, and the dust had pretty much settled. But here were the stories that I heard. Guys who had come at the beginning, who were finishing their PhD, and so they would go out to these country churches that had no pastor. And they would literally do one service and then go to another one, uh, or, or, or they would just be the interim pastor for these 20, 30 con people, congregations, some of them 70 years old. And more than one said they would get up just on a normal Sunday. They're, you know, going to preach about you know, God's love or joy or even a Mother's Day sermon, something uplifting and positive. And they would begin to read the Bible and they would look out and they would see people crying. And they thought, what is going on here? This ain't never happened before. Am I reading it wrong? You know, did someone just die and this was their favorite verse? And so they would just go get on with the business and they would preach. The next thing they'd show, they'd read the Bible and people would cry. And the third week and the fourth week, they would finally say, why are you crying? They would say, you don't understand, preacher. It's been years since anybody ever read the Bible in a church service in this place. You had these guys who denied the faith, denied this was God's book, and they would stand up and give talks on who knows what. But the Bible had been closed and thrown in the bottom of the pulpit and never been read to the people. And so when God's word was actually read to them, they wept over it. 
you have here a very similar in some ways situation where God's people, because of their repeated offenses and sins, it wasn't just like they did one thing wrong and God said, you're done. We're talking generations and generations, hundreds of years of pleading with supernatural displays, with prophets preaching to the people, you've got to stop living this way. Turn back to God before they were sent off to exile. But now, what is being read? The book of the law. And before their faces is this reality. They were a sinful people that had turned their hard hearts toward a gracious and loving God who not only saved them from slavery in Egypt, but had promised every imaginable blessings to them. So when they read the law, they are brought to conviction. Earlier I mentioned the letter to the Hebrews. There we're told that God's word is living and active. It's like a double-edged sword. And if we are giving attention to the scriptures like we should, the Holy Spirit is going to wield that sword. Not like some, you know, hacking Viking, but like a surgeon. With great skill and precision, he's going to move into our lives and he's going to be good cutting on those places of sin that's there. Like any surgery, conviction is not painless. In fact, sometimes it's very painful. It's very painful to be, to, to be faced with the ugliness and the malignancy that is the sin that's in our eyes. When we have convinced ourselves for months or years that what we are is just fine, there's nothing wrong with us. And yet the Spirit is using the Word to poke and to cut away at that spiritual cancer that we might see it, that we might be disgusted by it, that we might flee from it and by the grace of God be changed. That's why the weeping is such a good thing here. But notice that me and Maya and the priests say, you can't just keep weeping all day. You can't just keep mourning all day. Verse 10, go your way, eat the fat, drink the sweet wine, send portions to anyone who has nothing ready. For this day is holy to our Lord. And do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites call the people saying, be quiet, for this day is holy and do not be grieved. In a few minutes, we're going to see that part of the reason why they didn't want them grieving is because they were about to enter into a feast day appointed by God's law that emphasized the joy of God's provision. But more profoundly, more profoundly, the point being made here is this. Holiness and happiness are not antithetical to each other. When God begins to poke on our lives and show us where we're sinful, where we need change, where we desperately need Him, the result is not a lifetime of misery. The, li the result is not a lifetime of pain and, and depression and, and mourning and woe is me weeping. No, the weeping happens for a night, but joy comes in the morning. For the joy of the Lord is our strength. That is what bolsters us. That is what gets us back up and moving forward. That is what causes us to go to God, trusting in Him and pursuing holiness over the long term. If that's true in the Old Covenant, how much more in the New Covenant when we see the fullness of God's plan? That, that Under the Old Covenant, it was sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice. It only gave them temporary reprieve. But now, through Christ, the full, perfect, final sacrifice has come. Not just some animal, but God's own Son who took on flesh and spilled His precious blood for us. In great love, He loved us 
And while we were still sinners, he died for us. He bore God's wrath against our sin. So we not, need not fear in exile. Jesus was exiled in our place that we might be brought near in safety and security to the living God. We ought to have a sincere experience of joy even in the midst of conviction. And what that should lead us to do is to respond obediently to God's word. This is the last thing that we see. Respond obediently. In verse 12, Nehemiah says that all the people went their way to eat and drink and send portions and to make great rejoicing. Why? Because they understood the words that were declared to them. In the rest of the chapter, we read about how the fathers of the houses return the next day for more study. They hear about the feast that God commanded them to keep. And what do they do? They keep it. They obey God. They found written in the law, verse 14, that God had commanded by Moses the people of the Israel should dwell in booths during the feast of the seventh month. They should proclaim it and publish it in all their towns and in Jerusalem. Go out to the hills and bring branches of olive, wild olive, myrtle, palm, and other leafy trees to make booths as it is written. What do they think? Boy, that sounds like a lot of work, doesn't it? Why did God ever ask them to do that? Wouldn't it be easier if we just slept in our beds and we wouldn't have to go out to the hills? We'd have more money. We could give it to the temple. We could finish uh, the rebuilding project. I mean, besides, what are the neighbors going to think? We start putting these weird palm branch booths on top of our house. That's not what they thought. Verse 16. They saw in the law what was prescribed, so the people went out and brought them and made booths for themselves, each on his own roof, and in their courts, in the courts of the house of God, and in the square of the water gate, in the square of the gate of Ephraim, and all the assembly of those who had returned from captivity made booze and lived in the booze. For from the days of Joshua the son of Nun to that day the people of Israel had not done so. For generations people had ignored the law, but not with them. What was the result? There was great rejoicing. These Israelites heard the voice of God. They heard the message of the Bible. They obeyed it. They didn't rationalize their disobedience. They didn't marginalize the instruction they received. They didn't shrug their shoulders and walk away as if nothing happened. No, they saw what God required of them, and they actually did it. And they did it well. They sacrificed from their normal jobs. They spent money. They were generous with those who didn't have and more. And what was the result? There was great rejoicing. Understand this, write it down if you have to, because it's a problem we struggle with in this country. Convenience and ease will never bring you as much joy as when we humbly, sacrificially, and thoroughly obey God. Convenience and ease will never bring you as much joy as when we humbly, sacrificially, and thoroughly obey God. So we come to the end and we have to ask this question, what do you think about the sermon? Is it drudgery or is it a gift? One of my favorite hymn writers, Isaac Watts, used the words of a psalm to pin a song about the gathering together of God's people in worship, the coming together of the saints together under God's word. If we learned this hymn, if we sang it next week or the week after, I'm, I'm going to end with this question. Could you sing it and mean it? Here's what Watts sang. How pleased and blessed was I to hear the people cry, Come, let us seek our God today. Yes, with a cheerful zeal we haste to Zion's hill, and there our vows and honors pay. Zion, thrice happy place, adorned with wondrous grace, the walls of strength embrace thee round. 
and thee our tribes appear to pray, to praise, and hear the sacred gospel's joyful sound. My tongue repeats her vows, peace to this sacred house, for there my friends and kindred dwell. And since my glorious God makes thee his blessed abode, my soul shall ever love thee well. Father, I hope that that is our prayer, that it would please us, that it would bless us to hear all God's people coming together saying, let us seek God today. The Father, we would be hasty in our coming together in this place, the church, not a building, but your people, a place where you have put up walls of strength that we might pray and praise and hear the glorious, joyful message of the gospel of Christ. Father, do we know that our friends and closest family dwell here among this people, your church, that you, our glorious God, makes your dwelling place here with your people? Father, if so, then we would love the church ever well, as Watt says. We would love the church. We would love to be together. We would love to assemble, to hear your voice and be changed, not just as individuals, but as one body of Christ. We ask these things in his name. Amen.